a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Or should I say, welcome to the realm where we revel in wrong think. Now, I do have to point out you must be at least this committed to freedom in order to be able to make it through one of these programs. Relax. <laughs> Most people are. They just they just don't realize it. But uh, the ride can get a little bit bumpy at times, as uh, I'm sure you're about to find out. By the way, I have some great sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. It would mean the world to me if you were to uh, show them support, either by reaching out to them and letting them know that the message that they have for you has reached your ears, or better still, by putting some cold, hard cash in their hands and doing business with them. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, also Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So, <clears throat> anything interesting happen over the weekend? Uh, just just asking for a friend. Yeah, the, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, of course, handed down, or I'm sorry, the uh, overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision handed down over the weekend. And as uh, was expected, the political left has gone nuts. They have just absolutely flipped out. And I guess this was to be expected. It's, look, this has been a divisive issue for the better part of five decades. And I think it was Rush Limbaugh nearly 30 years ago. I know it was in, in one of his first books. I think his book, I Told You So. He said, abortion would be our next civil war. Now, there have been various times since I read that book that I thought, ah, nah, maybe he missed it. But, <clears throat> but certainly it's a very divisive issue. You know, at least up there in terms of the kind of divisiveness that we saw uh, between slave states and non-slave states uh, prior to Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. But uh, wow, wow, wow. The, the freakouts and the denunciations. and the, the craziest part to me is the same people who are sitting, I, I guess it was the Babylon Bee summed this up best, January 6th committee pauses hearings in order to stage an insurrection. And really, you're starting to see people at uh, very high positions in the U.S. government talk about how the court's illegitimate. And, and others just coming out. I mean, I can't believe there are people openly calling for assassination of Supreme Court justices. Burn it all down. Burn it down. Get violent. Rawr, get to the streets. And, you know, some of it's just talk. But there's also enough that, uh, oh, man, we are fractured. As, as a country, this is... This is what it looks like to come apart at the seams. And I don't tell you this to scare you. You probably noticed it yourself and thought, wow, that's that's intense. Even where I live in south central Idaho, which is, you know, fairly rural, mostly conservative community, there were probably 100 protesters making their way down one of the main thoroughfares yesterday, you know, trying to make themselves heard. I have nothing wrong, by the way, with people who, who peacefully protest. <clears throat> if they feel like they've got a message they need to get out there, by all means, do so. But if you cross the line to where you're threatening people, you're stopping traffic, you know, beating on cars and threatening to drag people out, um, I'm not going to feel sympathy if someone runs you over trying to get away from you. Put me on that jury, and I promise you they will walk 
because I would refuse to convict somebody who is reasonably trying to get away from a mob that's trying to gin itself up into harming somebody. Okay, that's that's one aspect to look at, but I want to I want to just pose a, a a possibility to you and I realize not everybody's going to see it this way. But I would ask you to remember that what we are seeing play out before us is not purely a political battle. In fact, I I remain more convinced than ever what we are seeing today is this is these are symptoms of a spiritual battle that's been going on forever. And it's the battle between light and darkness. Now, some people will say, Brian, that's that's hyperbole to try to put this in terms of good and evil. Although I would submit for those who believe that, uh, you know, there there is such a thing as a spiritual reality, that there are eternal purposes to our very existence. This actually fits pretty well with that paradigm. And, and the best evidence I can think of to, to illustrate how this is so is if you watch some of the videos of the people who are just having absolute meltdowns. I actually, I wanted to share some of them, and then I realized, gosh, I don't think I can find any that aren't just laden with F-bombs and people, you know, foaming at the mouth, freaking out, it's my body, ah! you know, screaming at the camera and whatnot. Here's the key, and I'm, I'm not encouraging you to watch these videos because, frankly, they're kind of disturbing, but should you find yourself curious and you want to see what some of these folks are doing, Libs of TikTok actually has a pretty good collection of people who are, are really unhinged about this overturning of Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, did nothing to take away so-called uh, reproductive rights from women. All it did was it kicked the issue back to the states and said, the states and the people need to decide issues like this. And there are some states that absolutely are on the side of absolutely. You want to have an abortion right there at the moment of birth? Sure, we'll do it for you. Or at least we'll permit it, I should say. Nonetheless, look at the eyes of these people in these videos freaking out. Now, if you don't believe that there's a spiritual reality beyond, you know, just what we can experience with our five senses, it may not make a lot of sense. But for those of us who believe that, no, there there really is a spiritual reality and there is this nature of light versus darkness, it's pretty hard to come away without some sense that uh, there there is demonic possession at work in some of these people. Look at their eyes. Something is just screwed up. And, you know, there was a time where I thought, okay, now it's, you know, you're just seeing things. But I have seen enough of these videos now, and there is a common thread. And, again, look at the eyes. Maybe you won't see what I see, but it's really disturbing, at least in the sense that it's like, wow, that, uh, that stuff appears to be real. Now, having said that, let me, let me flip this on its head and say, if that is real, then it is also true that uh, there is great spiritual power and influence in the light. And this is what I'm going to encourage is that's where most of our focus really needs to be. Like 95% of what we focus on should be focusing on what is good and what is light and what is true and what's uplifting. Again, that's not turning your back on evil. It's just maintain your situational awareness, you know, be aware of what evil's doing. 
but focus on the light because that's really, that's where we need to operate. I saw a couple of things pop up um, over the weekend on, on Facebook and, and I got to give a shout out here to my friend, Kazinia Kazinia, sorry, Kazinia, I just butchered your last name. Um, anyway, she works with the homeless in Salt Lake City. And I saw this, this marvelous meme that she had posted, and it's just a very simple one, but it just says, some stranger somewhere remembers you because you were kind to them. That's profound. I mean, that's way more profound than, than we're likely to give credit to. Somebody remembers you because you were kind to them. Be that kind of per- person. Have that kind of focus in your life. And you're going to make it through this just fine, even though things are getting pretty intense right now. The second one was a picture of an old man talking to a little child on a bridge. And it says, I asked a wise man, tell me, sir, in which field could I make a great career? He said with a smile, be a good human being. There's a lot of opportunity in this area at very little competition. I would concur with both of those sentiments. In fact, I'm going to take this one step further. This is because uh, my friend Kevin uh, taught a lesson in church yesterday and uh, told me that this, this really pushed him out of his comfort zone. But we are living through very historic times. We probably don't recognize it as fully as we're going to someday. But the same way we look back at, wow, you lived through the Great Depression. Wow, you lived through the Revolutionary War. Okay, maybe you don't know anybody who <laughs> lived through that. But the times that are approaching are at least as historic as any of the other major turnings that have taken place in our nation's history. What are you doing to write down and to catalog what was happening in your life? You don't have to be keeping a detail. Well, today Biden said this and, you know, the Republican response. It doesn't have to necessarily be political. But just humor me on this. And what if you knew that someday, maybe 20 years from now, maybe 200 years from now, Your children's children's children and so on would have the opportunity to read what you thought about the times that we're living in. What kind of things would you want them to know? What would you want them to understand that they would have an accurate representation of what's taking place? Yeah, I'm suggesting if you're not keeping some kind of a journal or some kind of a record of what uh, what is going on, you might regret that because these really are historic times. On the one hand, it's kind of a privilege to live through. On the other hand, it's a little bit scary. What would you want the people who follow in our footsteps to know about the times and how we survived? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That would be Dr. Ward Wagner. His office is located in St. George, Utah. And I would invite you to learn more about Dixie Chiropractic at DixieChiro.com. Just like it sounds, Dixie, C-H-I-R-O.com. You can uh, talk to him about uh, any accident injuries that uh, you may have suffered and how to deal with the pain from that. You can talk about bulging herniated discs or even neuropathy. They've got some wonderful intro specials, stuff you should check out. But here's the important thing to know. It works. 
I have more than one friend who has told me Dr. Wagner is a miracle worker, and these are people who who work hard and who depend on their backs to be, you know, in order so that they can continue to move and do what they do. DixieChiro.com will teach you all you need to know to get you in touch with Dr. Ward Wagner and Dixie Chiropractic. Well, the decision to turn overturning Roe v. Wade really sent a lot of shockwaves throughout the world, as you well know. It's dominated the news cycle. Funny, too, how you, you notice how many of the woke corporations have stepped up. Well, you know, we will pay for your <clears throat> health care related uh, travel expenses. Some of them just coming right out and saying, hey, we'll pay up to four. I think it was Dick's Sporting Goods. We will pay up to four thousand dollars travel expenses for anybody who needs to travel to get an abortion in a state that doesn't restrict abortions. OK, well, look, these are private businesses. They're free to do what they do. But I just want to point out just for the sake of those who are thinking, oh, that is so altruistic and so benevolent of them. Yeah, it is. I mean, hey, it's a whole lot cheaper to pay somebody to, you know, kill their unborn child than it is to pay maternity leave and, you know, other benefits that follow after they add another soul to their family. Sorry, but that sounds like some pretty, pretty hardcore numbers crunching. And, you know, it's uh, certainly not it's not a point of view that I would agree with, but you can see why they're motivated to do so. I think one of the, the most interesting things that I've seen is how the same leaders who just a few months ago were just forcing vaccinations and forcing the marginalization of the unvaccinated, relegate them to the margins of society, you know, punish them, take away everything they have, take away their jobs, take away their ability to to shop, take away their ability to travel freely. Now suddenly these same leaders are very, very concerned about upholding human rights. Jordan Schachtel, in his uh, dossier substack, has has a great essay here. Subtitle, it's Pearl Clutching Time, Roe v. Wade Aftermath, Free World Leaders Claim to Care About Human Rights Again. Schachtel says, after two years of supporting lockdowns, coercing experimental pharmaceutical injections, and pursuing other forms of relentless invasions of privacy and fundamental rights, the free world has suddenly awakened to condemn the Supreme Court's monumental decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade's previous precedent mandated federal abortion. The new ruling allows states to set their own abortion policies. Now, this decision greatly upset the global ruling class, especially the progressive globalist leaders of the, quote, free world. These heads of state made it known to the world exactly how outraged they were about this kerfuffle. But amazingly, they claimed the mantle of human rights, as if the previous two years of their authoritarian rule never happened, and they advertised these human rights as a necessity in preserving a free society. All right, let's get the first hypocrite up here into the spotlight. Ah, there he is, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who sicked his secret police on peaceful protesters and prevented free movement for the unvaccinated. He was the first of many to defend the right of women to choose what to do with their own bodies. There's a tweet from CBS News. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called the U.S. Supreme Court's decision a horrific development that threatens the right of women to choose what to do with their own bodies. Trudeau also said the news coming out of the United States is horrific. My heart goes out to the millions of American women who are now set to lose their legal right to an abortion. I can't imagine the fear and anger you're feeling right now. Uh, Quick uh, fact check there, Mr. Trudeau. Uh, They haven't lost anything. 
That right is absolutely still intact. In fact, uh, they, as, as my friend Connor Boyack puts it, nobody has, has had their reproductive rights threatened at all. Now, their abortion rights, depending on where they live, may be subject to some restrictions, just like you can't gamble in every single state. You can't buy recreational weed in every single state. Some states are extremely restrictive in terms of what guns you're allowed to have. It's this little concept called federalism. And I can't imagine the fear and anger you feel about people having a choice, Mr. Trudeau. But, you know, you do you. I really like this tweet from him. No government, politician, or man should tell a woman what she can and cannot do with her body. I want women in Canada to know that we will always stand up for your right to choose. Yeah, just like you stood up for their right to choose whether or not to take an experimental vaccine. Gotcha. Right on, Justin. (laughs) By the way, isn't it interesting, too, how quickly everybody suddenly has clarity as to what is a woman and what isn't? I mean, we don't even have biology degrees, but it seems like everybody's pretty firm now on uh, on what women are. Kind of nice to see at least a partial return to common sense. All right, moving on. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, another world leader who locked down his country for two years and forced his citizens to take experimental pharmaceutical injections, also had strong opinions on the matter. I've got to tell you that it's a, I think it's a big step backwards. I've always believed in a woman's right to choose, and I stick to that view said Boris Johnson. Here's Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. It's one of the darkest days for women's rights in my life. The politician earned the nickname the power-mad COVID queen for how she relentlessly targeted civil liberties. Here's Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. We cannot take any right for granted. Social achievements are always in danger of being turned back, and their protection must be daily. Women must be able to freely decide, about, to decide freely rather about their lives. Now, keep in mind, Sanchez was the guy who pursued ultra-restrictive lockdowns for the past two years. Oh, look, here's uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. Abortion is a fundamental right for all women. It must be defended. I express my solidarity with the women whose freedoms are being challenged today by the United States Supreme Court. By the way, this was the same politician who also advanced Ruthless lockdowns and mandatory jab policies. Are are you seeing a little trend of hypocrisy or selective outrage at work here? And if I understand correctly, I believe France's abortion abortion laws, or at least uh, the restrictions that they place on abortion, are even stricter than those being enacted by some of the states here. Interesting. Why are these leaders so very concerned about what's happening in America? Other than do they not want the people of their countries, to look around and go, hey, they have a choice in the matter. How come we're being, you know, hit with this one-size-fits-all approach? Anyway, moving on. Next, Jordan Schachtel talks about Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, previously engaged in the matter when the ruling was being deliberated. She forced her country into a two-year siege and later opened up travel so she wouldn't look like a hypocrite for giving Harvard's commencement keynote. I mean, I don't know how, mo- how much more obvious it would have to be. If it was sitting there honking on your nose, would you, would you start to recognize the tyranny that was pushed on the world and enforced on the world, the lives that were destroyed, and yet suddenly you have the same leaders who suggested these policies, upheld these policies, in fact pushed for even more of such policies, sitting here crying crocodile tears about how this is such a terrible thing. But again, at the the risk of of sounding pedantic, 
All this ruling did was recognize that the federal government does not have the authority under the Constitution to make the kinds of decisions for issues like abortion. That's a decision that needs to be made by the people and their elected representatives in their states. Because those are the people closest to the people, as in we the people, which is the ultimate source of where government gets its power. We all need to look at that little power chart, the power flow chart. Power starts with the people who, using their inalienable rights, delegate some power to their states. And then the states came together, called the federal government into existence and gave it very strictly limited powers just in a few areas where they had common interest. Beyond that, the federal government needs to butt out. And that's what the Supreme Court recognized. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to mention SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com as one of my sponsors. First of all, you got to know, I have the deepest respect for Teresa and Eric Alsop. They are the current owners of Sewing and Quilting Center. This is a sewing store that has been open for, well, let's see, since 1984. Wow, coming up on 40 years. It has changed ownership three times. The Alsops are the current owners. But this is a full-service sewing center, meaning whatever you need, if it's thread, if it's needles, if it's you know equipment, or if it's the actual machines themselves, they've got it all. And this includes sewing machines, embroidery machines, long-arm quilting machines. Seriously, there is something for every single budget. And as I look at the events around us, I think, man, having the ability to, uh, to create your own quilts, your own clothing, to fix your clothing, to, to keep it maintained, just seems like a really, really smart thing to do. And I also like the fact that Sewing and Quilting Center will train you. They'll teach you how to use your machine. So it's not just like, well, here it is. Good luck figuring it out. No, they'll show you. And, of course, they service those machines, including machines that they had that they didn't sell to you. If you need something to, to be fixed, they can take care of it. Check out the link in my show notes. It's SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Well, Barry Brownstein has another marvelous essay about uh, the big lie of tribalism. And there's a lot of tribalism going on right now. I think uh, this is one of those times where we really need to remember that uh, tribal thinking is being used to divide us. So this is tribalism's big lie. And Barry Brownstein writes, During the winter of 2021, journalist Virginia Heffernan sheltered from COVID in her upstate New York getaway. And after a heavy snow, she was astonished when her Trump-supporting neighbor plowed her driveway. Now, one could conclude that her neighbor saw an unprepared individual in need and acted with decency and kindness. So in her opinion essay for the Los Angeles Times, Heffernan revealed her tribal thinking as she weighed whether to thank, whether to offer thanks to her neighbor after alluding to the Nazi occupation of France and Hezbollah's policy of giving out free things in Lebanon. Heffernan concluded she could not give her neighbor absolution. In fact, she wrote, free driveway work, as nice as it is, is just not the same currency as justice and truth. Now, Barry says she tells us nothing of her neighbor other than he's a good snowplower and a Trumpite. See, her neighbor saw her humanity, but she saw him through her labels. A simple act of kindness from a neighbor became an opportunity for Virginia Heffernan to express her tribal prejudices. 
And the basis of Heffernan's perception was her tribal mindset and her inability to see the humanity in others. In his book, Open, Johann Norberg says, Historically, we've expanded the circle of people we feel empathy for by discovering that we belong to groups that overlap the old divisions. Now, Barry Brownstein says if if she spoke to her neighbor, she might find they share a love for upstate New York. Maybe they have a hobby in common. Without her thinking getting in the way, she might discover that they're both human beings striving to have a happy and purposeful life. Now, this spring in Wired, Heffernan, without a trace of irony observed of others, when a person grounds their serenity and joy in a false claim about reality, you do little but cause pain if you try to root it out. Heffernan's false claims about the tribal nature of reality can instruct us all. She has assigned other people a terrible purpose. Other people are objects that either share her views or are against her. The character and actions of others don't matter. What matters is the maligned category Heffernan has assigned to them. In his book, Less Than Human, philosopher David Livingstone Smith explains that journalists have always had an important role to play in disseminating falsehoods to mold public opinion. And this often involves dehumanizing military and political opponents. Smith quotes Aldous Huxley, who explained, We lose our scruples when a human being is spoken of as though he were not a human being, but as the representative of some wicked principle. Now, Heffernan doesn't seem ready to examine the cost of her tribal thinking. Why would we see the havoc it creates if we think our mindset works for us? Barry Brownstein asks, what if the justice Heffernan is seeking can emerge only when tribal thinking is relinquished? He says, one of the most damaging illiberal beliefs is the belief in the supremacy of the tribe. From that meta-belief, other illiberal beliefs flow, mistakenly believing others are less worthy. It becomes easy to fail to see the humanity in others. From that mistake, it's easy to adopt a zero-sum mindset and believe that all that matters is one's own welfare and the welfare of the group with which one is identified. Freedom for me, but not for thee, is a zero-sum mindset. He says tribalism is the belief in the supremacy of one's group identity over individual rights. Tribal identity fosters negative feelings, even hatred, toward those outside the tribe. In the grips of the tribal mindset, we see the world through a lens of us versus them, victims and victimizers. They are out to get me is an oft-heard refrain. We're certain our tribe deserves more than it has. He says tribalism rests on the destructive mental delusion of denying the humanity of others. I am fundamentally different and separate from those I'm judging. A second, more destructive delusion can follow from the first. My well-being depends on destroying or marginalizing those from whom I'm different. Matt Ridley explains in his book, The Origins of Virtue, the tendency of human societies to fragment into competing groups has left us with minds all too ready to adopt prejudices and pursue genocidal feuds. Now, Barry Brownstein says, most of us learned long ago to value human cooperation. We recognize that harming others doesn't foster either our own well-being or the well-being of others. But he says, many don't have the same probity when it comes to harming others directly through the coercive agents of government. In businesses, some seek subsidies, tariffs, or demand government force people to buy their products, such as ethanol and vaccines. Some want loans canceled. Others want to live rent-free. Still others want a guaranteed annual income. The mindset driving all these examples is zero-sum thinking. Zero-sum thinking, the philosophy that someone else must lose so I can win, 
is a mistaken idea that destroys lives and economies. Is zero-sum thinking fueled by growing tribalism, threatening human cooperation and progress? Brownstein says social psychologist Jonathan Haidt recently observed there is a direction to history and it is toward cooperation at larger scales. Adding that new technologies, writing, roads, the printing press, created new possibilities for mutually beneficial trade and learning. Zero-sum conflicts were better thought of as temporary setbacks. Norberg asks, why are we so bad at understanding that voluntary relations and an open economy are non-zero? It is not possible to change the nature of reality, but it is possible to adopt beliefs at odds with reality and experience harsh consequences. Norberg points us toward understanding how our failure to understand reality has polarized politics. Quote, Almost every kind of angst the rationalist right, the nationalist right rather and populist left feels over the economy is based on it, meaning zero-sum thinking, in one form or another. If the rich get richer, it's because they take it from us. With more immigrants, there are fewer resources left for the natives. If robots become smarter, there will be no jobs left for us. If trading partners like China and Mexico gain, it must be at our expense. End quote. Barry Brownstein says neither conservatives nor progressives are immune from zero-sum mindsets. Today, with inflation raging, many are sure greedy supermarkets and energy producers are responsible, not understanding that the Fed and politicians are culpable. It's easy to have strong opinions about which prices and salaries are too high. Now, he says, to be fair, lies propagated by government generate malcontent feelings and zero-sum thinking. If... As President Biden claims, America has achieved the most robust recovery in modern history. Why are your finances getting squeezed, or feeling squeezed, rather? Someone or something must be holding you back while others are getting ahead. This is not fair, you might reason. And the president is eager to channel your anger. Greedy corporations are part of the problem that he will solve. For those gripped by zero-sum thinking, economist Don Boudreaux's simple, clear demolition of the greed hypothesis goes unheeded. Barry Brownstein says those who practice identity politics teach the hateful idea that one's group's success must have been obtained by keeping another group down. Today, hate-based racial discrimination is openly encouraged on the grounds of rectifying past wrongs. Norberg observes, the more we talk about one way of grouping people, the more likely it is that people will align themselves accordingly. We're reverting to a more primitive form of social organization. In fact, he has a quote here from Norberg. If a prince, nobleman, or robber wanted our money in the past, they just took it from us. If a businessman wants our money, he has to offer us goods or services that we value so much that we're willing to give up our money to lay our hands on them. If another tribe got more skills and resources, it used to be dangerous because it meant they could more easily conquer us, winning the zero-sum game between us. Today, if a tribe on the other shore invents a photoelectric sensor or manages to harness power from the sun, it means we get access to smart electronic devices and unlimited energy. So to be clear, markets are corrupted by zero-sum thinking when governments subside, subsidize rather, and protect politically corrected cronies this is such an incredible essay we're going to come back to it just the other side of this quick commercial timeout this 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes yet, can I just suggest if you're a person who's serious about uh, checking things out for yourself, you will find plenty of links and sources that you can follow to make wrong think a snap. All you have to do is go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, click the subscribe button, it'll ask for your for your email address, and uh, I will never share it, I will never sell it, I'll never give it to anybody else. That stays between you and me, but I will happily send you a copy of my show notes each day that I do the show. All right, back to Barry Brownstein's article about uh, tribalism, the big lie. We're seeing a ton of tribal thinking right now. And frankly, you know what? Even on the pro-life side, there's a temptation. Well, because we're right, we're right. And, you know, to to put the tribe first and to to put how we look at other people second. Well, they're in the pro-choice tribe, so therefore I can discount everything they say. Look, there's common ground to be found, but you've got to be willing to look for it. Don't be too quick to judge. Don't substitute labels for observation. Just, you know. This, this is one of the great explanations that I think Barry offers here. Your beliefs lie. He says, we believe the tribal prejudices we adopt are genuine. But Norberg offers us an actionable offers us actionable advice. My firm conviction, he writes, is that it is precisely because we are so tribalist that we need an open cosmopolitan world. If we did not regularly meet and communicate and exchange with individuals from other groups, they would forever remain the mysterious, dangerous outgroup, the barbarians at the gates. Barry Brownstein says we may feel confident that the differences we observe are significant, yet when yet we tend to see what we've already decided is true. Recent research findings, rather, of psychologist Henry Tajfel, whose family was murdered during the Holocaust, reveal that the mind's default setting might be tribal thinking. This is how Norberg explains it. In a series of experiments, Tajfel and his colleagues measured in-group bias when groups were based on irrelevant differences. These studies were intended to give a baseline for comparisons, and then the researchers could add negative stereotypes and other conditions to see what created conflict. But disappointingly, they didn't have to do that. People expressed in-group loyalty and out-group discrimination just by being included in a group. Even though differences were trivial and they didn't know who the other members were, had never met them, and couldn't even hear them. For example, in one study, students were shown paintings by Wassily Kandinsky and Paul Klee, asked to express their preferences and then divided into groups they were told were based on those preferences. When a Kandinsky student was asked to allocate rewards to strangers anonymously, he preferred other Kandinskys to Klee's. Further, the students wanted to create as large a difference as possible between members of the two groups, even if it meant a lower reward for the members of their own group. Tajfell found that when even when groups were assigned randomly, we still wanted to beat them, and us, rather, still wanted to beat them and was willing to suffer as long as they suffered more. Our tribal thinking justifies feelings that support our absurd and destructive behavior. Now this brings us to Vladimir's choice. In totalitarian societies, the destructive tendency in human mindsets 
that Tajville studies revealed has been called Vladimir's Choice. And Norberg recounts the Eastern European fable. God appears before Vladimir, a poor peasant farmer, and tells him he will grant him one wish. Before Vladimir chooses, God adds as a caveat, anything I give to you will be granted to your neighbor Ivan twice over. Vladimir frowns, contemplates, and suddenly lights up as he concocts the perfect plan. Okay, take out one of my eyes. So has a critical mass of Americans adopted Vladimir's destructive error? A reasonable observer might see the warning lights flashing. American Vladimirs oppose free trade. They oppose medical freedom. They dislike the rule of law. They oppose property rights. They oppose free speech and disdain others who don't share their views. Someone must lose so I can win. Kill or be killed. They would rather have less, just so long as the groups they despise have even less than they do. The Vladimir mindset is not compatible with a peaceful society and prosperity. And Barry Brownstein says the state of society is a lagging indicator of the strength of our adherence to principles that promote human flourishing and cooperation. Now, there's still a lot to this uh, article. I'm going to let you describe. I'm going to let you discover this more on your own. I just want to jump to the end here where he says, prepare now to transcend zero-sum tribal thinking. And you can begin by supporting non-crony commerce in all of its magnificent win-win forms. He quotes from Thomas Paine, The Rights of Man. I have been an advocate for commerce because I am a friend to its effects. It is a pacific system operating to cordialize mankind by rendering nations as well as individuals useful to each other. If commerce were permitted to act to the universal extent it is capable, it would extirpate the system of war and produce a revolution in the uncivilized state of governments. End quote. Useful to each other, says Barry Brownstein, means that there are bonds that unite us all. Remember over the past 200 years, explosive economic growth and advances in material well-being came as we transcended tribal thinking. Embrace the reality of a common humanity shared with all, we descend into primal, primitive rather, tribal thinking at our peril. This is such a timely warning. And again, it starts with the individual. You may not have control over what this group or that group or this politician or this organization or company is doing. But you dang well have control over the person looking back at you in the mirror. That's why we've got to step up and make those changes starting with ourselves. I'm going to shift gears now. There's there's something else I wanted to share with you. I'm seeing more and more rumblings that, oh, there's more lockdowns coming. There's more uh, mitigation efforts. The, the, COVID, uh, the COVID mania folks have not given up. And if there was ever a time to learn how to walk in calm, confident authority, this is that time. And, and it's an essential part of claiming, using, and defending your natural rights. Got an article here from Alan Stevo. This is from uh, LewRockwell.com over the weekend. The title is, I Will Not Be Wearing a Mask Today. And, and to me, this is such a beautiful thing. It illustrates how simple this can be. Alan Stevo says, I was observing my local primary elections on June 7th. The public polling, polling place was in the basement of a women's shelter. To get to the kitchen, the residents and employees crossed through the polling place. It was neither the ideal environment for an election to take place, nor was it the ideal environment for a women's shelter to be run, but it got the job done for both purposes that day. After I'd been there for some time, a woman in an apron, built like a foot, college football lineman, came up to me and demanded loudly, Do you need a mask? I told her that I did not. 
she did not care for that for that answer. Uh, both her, he says, of course, both her and I recognized that her question was more of an order than a question. Using a question to voice an order is what anger management coaches would call passive-aggressive. Already loud, she got louder. You need a mask to be in here. Now, Alan Stevo says, look, I hadn't spoken to this woman. I hadn't interacted with this woman. I hadn't even been in the same room as this woman. But obviously, my unmasked presence in the building had triggered her in some way. So he says, at this point, I thought uh, I, I had no question that she might create a very disruptive scene or get physically aggressive or call the police on me or do who knows what unhinged things. Now, he says, things were happening around me election-wise that needed my attention, and this had to be addressed quickly. So I could tend to the business that I really cared about that day, which was observing the election. So what was I to do? He says, for an instant, I thought about an exemption, telling her that I was not able to wear a mask safely. But he says, it's a very, it was a very short instant. An exemption is the lesser approach. Then I thought for an instant about just ignoring her and turning away from her and toward my business. I could have even done it with a dismissive laugh. That would literally poke at the, or likely poke at the wounds she has, which is not something I like to do to others if it can be avoided. But that too crossed my mind for only an instant. He says, it took a lot of work to get me to what happened next. But he says, without even awkwardly missing a beat, I looked her in the eye and said calmly, relatively quietly, quietly and with certainty, I will not be wearing a mask today. And he says, let me stress that it was said calmly, relatively quietly, and with certainty. She followed my lead. She quieted down. She said in a suddenly cheerful voice, okay. Then she did an about face, crossed the polling place, and went back into the kitchen, not even entering the polling place again at any time during the next 12 hours. So there's the lesson for you. You've got to be able to walk in that calm, confident authority. And and something he did, this is something that uh, uh, I have friends in law enforcement who taught me this a long time ago. When someone is getting loud and starting to really get agitated, instead of trying to get loud with them, you know, and try and puff up and get bigger and louder, one of the most helpful things you can do is just simply lower your voice and say, I'm sorry, what did you say? Quietly. It brings the whole tone of the conversation back down. And I just love how Alan Stevo handled it. Look her in the eye. I will not be wearing a mask today. Yeah, it takes guts. You're still going to have to summon some courage to do it. But if you know what's right, come on. How hard is it really to summon that courage? This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust you got your thinking cap with you today. All right, screw it on. <laughs> Actually, we're going to have a little bit of fun getting things started today. I haven't watched Bill Maher for a while, but I, I will tell you this. I have a very irreverent sense of humor, and I think Bill Maher has actually 
He's been a very funny guy for a long time, even though politically he and I are usually on opposite sides of various issues. I want to share with you a few minutes from his show, and I I went through this carefully, so there's nothing here that I have to bleep, you know, no bad language, but um, it was really refreshing and encouraging to see Bill put that sense of humor to work, questioning the social justice imperative. This is a segment from Real Time with Bill Maher called Along for the Pride. And I think he addressed, since we're closing out Pride Month on a high note, um, let's uh, let's see about some of the questions that he has for the uh, the Pride movement. About the human race is changing at a previously unprecedented rate. We have to at least discuss it. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. According to a recent Gallup poll, less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do, 4.2% of Gen X, 10.5% of millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z. Which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. And then who's going to buy this chair? I'm just saying that when things change this much, this fast, people are allowed to ask, what's up with that? All the babies are in the wrong bodies? Was there a mix-up at the plant, like with Captain Crunch's Oops All Berries? It wasn't that long ago when adults asked a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? They meant, what profession? (laughs) In the wake of America about to lose abortion rights, the ACLU recently tweeted a list of those who would be disproportionately harmed by this. You would think women might top that list. No, wasn't even on the list. Second on the list was LGBT. Really? Abortion rights affects gay and trans people more than, you know, breeders? (laughs) I'm happy for LGBT folks that we now live in an age where they can live their authentic lives openly. And we should always be mindful of respecting and protecting. But someone needs to say it. Not everything's about you. And it's okay to ask questions about something that's very new and involves children. The answer can't always be that anyone from a marginalized community is automatically right, trump card, mic drop, end of discussion. Because we're literally experimenting on children. Maybe that's why Sweden and Finland have stopped giving puberty blockers to kids. Because we just don't know much about the long-term effects. Although common sense should tell you that when you reverse the course of raging hormones there's going to be problems. We do know it hinders the development of bone density, which is kind of important if you like having a skeleton. (laughs) Fertility and the ability to have an orgasm seem also to be affected. This isn't just a lifestyle decision. It's medical. Weighing trade-offs is not bigotry. 
Yet when a book questioning the sudden uptick in transitioning children was released, a trans lawyer with the ACLU named Chase Strangio tweeted, Stopping the circulation of this book and these ideas is 100% a hill I will die on. How very civil liberties of him. Chase, by the way, has just been named one of the grand marshals of this year's New York City Pride March, along with three other trans people and a lesbian. Huh, what's missing here? Oh, right, a gay man. (laughs) That's where we are now. Gay men aren't hip enough for the gay pride parade. (laughs) Compared to trans, gay is practically cis, and cis is practically Mormon. And this is a phenomenon we need to take into account when we look at this issue. Yes, part of the rise in LGBT numbers is from people feeling free enough to tell it to a pollster, and that's all to the good. But some of it is, it's trendy. Penis equals man. Okay, boomer. (laughs) Remember, the prime directive of every teen is anything to shock and challenge the squares who brought you up. It's why nobody gets a nose ring at 56. And if you haven't noticed that with kids, doing something for the likes is more important than their own genitals, you haven't been paying attention. Dr. Erica Anderson is a prominent 71-year-old clinical psychologist who is herself transgender and who now says, I think it's gone too far. The L.A. Times summarizes, she's come to believe that some children identifying as trans are falling under the influence of their peers and social media. If you attend a small dinner party of typically very liberal upper-income Angelinos, it is not uncommon to hear parents who each have a trans kid having a conversation about that. What are the odds of that happening in Youngstown, Ohio? If this spike in trans children is all-natural, Why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. (laughs) It's like that day we suddenly all needed bottled water all the time. (laughs) If we can't admit that in certain enclaves there is some level of trendiness to the idea of being anything other than straight, then this is not a serious science-based discussion. It's a blow being struck in the culture wars using children as cannon fodder. I don't understand parents who won't let their nine-year-old walk to the corner without a helmet, an EpiPen, and a GPS tracker. (laughs) And God forbid their lips touch dairy, but... But hormone blockers and genital surgery, fine. Talk about a nut allergy. All right, I'm going to stop him there. But that, I don't know if you recognize what a seismic shift that is. Just because, look, I'm not saying that uh, Bill Maher is, you know, this this uh, hardcore liberal and he only sees things from, for things from a liberal point of view. But the fact that he is openly calling out some of these, these questions and, and, and say, why can't we ask questions about this? I mean, he's he's bucking the tide here, and uh, this is not a small thing, especially 
especially during Pride Month, especially when when wokeness has become, you know, its own mass formation psychosis sweeping across, you know, the, the country and around the world. I appreciate that he can do it with a sense of humor. Bill, I really appreciate the fact that you did it without uh, dropping a bunch of F-bombs, too. You made my work a whole lot easier. I've got a link to the the full 10-minute long clip. But I'm glad he's asking these questions. And you notice, nowhere is he preaching hatred or derision or we got to marginalize these people and we got to shame them and make them feel more guilt. I get the impression he's actually really on the side of, of people who have been marginalized. And who have been shamed and, and, and pushed, you know, to the very fringes of society. But at the same time, he's calling out the ones that are, um, how can I put this, drunk on power? Drunk with a sense of, oh, I am right because I am an oppressed minority and you must do everything I say. Do you not feel the guilt? I'm just grateful to see somebody in the entertainment industry calling this out. And I think it's, it's way past time. And I don't know, you know, maybe the the Roe v. Wade overturn decision, you know, from this past weekend, maybe the, the I guess it's the Dobbs decision. Maybe this is, is going to just exacerbate the situation and make the, the divide a little bit deeper. But isn't it funny? You can find common ground if you're looking for it. And frankly, I think you would be surprised. You'd be very surprised to find that uh, there are people who are LGBTQ plus whatever, that also have some very common values with you. I guess what I'm suggesting is not everybody is an activist who's out there, you know, trying to force feed the world whatever their agenda is. If you know Lady MAGA USA, this is a prime example. Very conservative, hardcore Trump-supporting individual who happens to be a drag performer. Not exactly my cup of tea, but I'll tell you, Ryan is a great guy. And he's very much on the side of freedom. So maybe find the common ground where you can. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Hey, I'd like to give a special thanks to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Heather can actually help you if you are anywhere in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. You're looking for a mortgage, be it a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage. Talk to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get the loan you need and to get it without delay. She has decades of experience. She understands what the lenders need. She understands what the borrowers need. She knows the ins and outs of the lending industry. And she can especially help you when time is of the essence. Just call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, if you haven't sensed it yet, hang on. The lust for total control among the political class really is surging. Maybe it's because they, they, uh, they see that there's, their grip on power is getting more and more tenuous by the day. Got a great essay here from Julie Kelly from American Greatness or AmGreatness.com. This is a no-holds-barred assessment of the accelerating purge that is being aimed at freedom-loving Americans. And Julie's advice is, buckle up, America. This only gets worse from here. She says, one week after a team of thugs working for Democratic Party activist Stephen Colbert were arrested for illegally entering a Capitol building, 
in order to record themselves stalking Republican congressional leaders, news coverage of the incident has all but disappeared. Neither the U.S. Capitol Police, the arresting agency, nor the Department of Justice has produced any details of the gang's unauthorized incursion into two Capitol buildings with the blessing of Representative Adam Schiff and two other Democratic House members. Now, it appears that the Capitol Police chief has not yet responded to a demand by Representatives James Jordan and Rodney Davis for all footage, photographs, and witness statements documenting the crew's activities on June 16th, including accusations they banged on the doors of female legislators such as Lauren Boebert of of, uh, Colorado. It further appears that no one is demanding a congressional ethics investigation into Schiff's participation in leading a tour of Colbert's uh, Colbert's insurrectionists rather through the buildings, including after hours. Following a brief detainment, Colbert's thugs went home, spared pre-dawn raids by armed FBI agents, and days, if not months, of incarceration, while a federal judge determines whether they should stay behind bars awaiting trial. In fact, she says Colbert's insurrectionists will avoid the kangaroo court known as the D.C. District Court, overseeing hundreds of similar charges related to the January 6th protest on Capitol Hill. Fox News reported on Thursday the defendants associated with Colbert's show will appear in D.C. Superior Court in late July. The court's website contains no information about the case. Simply put, every January 6th case is handled as a federal crime, while the conduct of Team Colbert is considered a local offense, even though it occurred in the exact same venue. Trump supporters who protested Joe Biden's election are branded terrorists by Joe Biden's Justice Department and treated accordingly. Trump foes who harass Republican lawmakers and mock the families of January 6th detainees in public are considered comedians by the same set of prosecutors, then let off the hook for engaging in more threatening behavior than most who participated in the Capitol protest. And this wasn't the only example this week of the double standard of justice in Joe Biden's America. On the same day, Fox News disclosed that Colbert's producers would get a, get preferential beltway treatment for pals of the regime. The FBI arrested Daniel Hatchett Speed, a Navy reservist and January 6th protester, on four misdemeanors, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds, disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, and parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. Now, nothing Speed is accused of doing on January 6th is worse than what Colbert's crew did on June 16th. Speed entered the Senate wing door around 2.50 p.m., about 30 minutes after the joint session of Congress recessed and the Capitol was evacuated. Capitol Police stood nearby chatting with protesters. Speed walked around the rotunda and exited at 3.35 p.m. By all accounts, Speed didn't carry a weapon or assault police officers or even bang on the office doors of sitting members of Congress. But the FBI has tracked his moves ever since. And big tech, per usual, lent a hand. Amazon produced data indicating that Speed purchased a black Under Armour sports face mask on December 3, 2020, resembling the mask he can be seen wearing inside the Capitol. The government's criminal complaint detailed. Also, Amazon data indicates that Speed purchased a black Samurai Tactical Wakazashi tactical backpack on Amazon on November 24th, 2020. Both items resemble the mask and backpack Speed can be seen wearing in the U.S. Capitol police footage. Now, Julie Kelly says in January, more than a year after the four-hour disturbance at the Capitol, 
The FBI photographed Speed outside his home as it conducted surveillance on the nonviolent subject. As if that wasn't enough, the FBI hired an informant in March to get more information from Speed. Portraying himself as a like-minded individual, the FBI snitch met twice with Speed to get him to talk about what he did on January 6th. Speed admitted he went to the Capitol to hear the debate over the 2020 election results, but instead encountered law enforcement hitting us with tear gas, rubber bullets, and all kinds of things. He said he climbed a staircase inside the building to avoid Antifa agitators and to stop getting tear gassed. Speed's life will now be destroyed by media, federal prosecutors, and D.C. judges. Like at least 200 January 6th defendants, Speed will likely plead guilty to parading in the Capitol, yet face months in prison for the petty offense. His friends and neighbors will turn on him, local reporters will hound him incessantly, and a judge will berate him for participating in an attempt to overthrow democracy on January 6th. In other words, Speed will not get the courtesies extended to the Colbert crew. And neither will Jeffrey Clark, an assistant attorney general during the waning months of Trump's presidency. In further collaboration between the Justice Department and the January 6th Select Committee, at least a dozen armed federal agents arrived at Clark's home early Wednesday morning to seize his electronics. According to a colleague, Clark was put in the street in his PJs while they raided his Virginia residence. News of the raid was leaked to the news media, which dutifully and gleefully reported the details just hours before the start of the January 6th committee's hearings on January on Thursday afternoon, which Clark's, in which Clark's alleged role in helping Trump overturn the 2020 election was the sole topic. Now, Julie Kelly says, as time runs out on Democrats and Biden's reign continues its inexorable collapse, the Justice Department, led by Obama loyalist Lisa Monaco and Biden campaign advisor Matthew Graves, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, is hastening its purge of political dissidents tied to Donald Trump. Federal agents investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday dropped subpoenas on people in multiple locations, widening the probe of how political activists supporting President Donald Trump tried to use invalid electors to thwart Joe Biden's 2020 electoral victory. That's what the Washington Post reported last Wednesday. Targets include David Schaefer, chairman of the Georgia Republic Party, Republican Party rather, and other Trump campaign advisors who participated in a so-called fake elector stunt after the election. Arizona Republican Party chairwoman Kelly Ward and her husband also received subpoenas this week, according to the New York Times, along with two other Trump electors from Arizona. Now, Julie Kelly says the dragnet serves two purposes, to ruin the lives of Trump supporters and build momentum to eventually charge Donald Trump before the November election. Unable to win the right way, Democrats hope to avert an electoral bloodbath this fall by purging their political enemies, no matter what the cost to the country or the human collateral. And her advice is buckle up, America. This only gets worse from here. Now, again, I'm not really, I'm not much of a political animal here. But I would say this deserves some awareness. You should be keeping an eye on this and and be very skeptical about whatever the media is saying and whatever sitting politicians are telling you about, oh, the threat to our democracy. They use that word a lot. I don't think they really understand what it means. And even if they did, they'd still be misusing it. When they talk about people who uh, will not march with them and chant in unison with them, threatening our democracy, what they really mean is these people are threatening our power, our grasp on power. And as we've seen, that can be a pretty powerful motivation in and of itself 
to be as ruthless as you need to to hang on to that power at any cost. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington and his marvelous ammo company located in beautiful southern Utah. If you are in need of ammo, I want you to know Spencer has kept things going. He's doing what, you know, it's it's tough times in some places. Some people have complained for months and months, man, it's really hard to find ammo or it's really hard to, to get your hands on it. Not so much. You just got to gotta be smart, and, and he has done a great job of keeping you stocked with popular calibers with, at very reasonable prices, high-quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. Again, that's HSLAmmo.com. Check out the website if you're lucky enough to live in St. George. Stop by and see him and purchase some ammo from him directly. Tell him thanks for being a sponsor of this show. Well, this rising cost of fuel is hitting all of us where it hurts. And I don't want to sound like a masochist, but I, I just, I can't look away. every t- There's a couple of truck stops just a couple miles down the road from where I live. And every time I drive past them, I have to, you know, look. What is the neon sign saying? And I'm happy to tell you, you know, that the, the price of gas has actually been pretty stable for about the last week, sitting at about five nineteen a gallon, which still, it just pains me. I've had to, to engage in uh, some, some, uh, Difficult discussions with my kids. No, not about the facts of life, except for the facts of life that, look, every time we go over to visit Grandma or every time I take you and your friend over to Twin Falls and I let you guys go and play at the mall and whatever and then come back and get you, every time we make that trip over and back, we're looking at roughly a $20 bill. I guess if I have them start putting gas in the car once in a while, they'll start to understand, holy cow, this adds up in a hurry. But let's talk a little bit about the gas inflation crisis Is it almost over? Will it ever be over? Where will it finally stop? Brandon Smith, writing for alt-market.us, has some great analysis here. I'll just hit a couple of highlights here. He says, after a single Federal Reserve rate hike of 75 BPS, I'm noticing a trend among mainstream economists whipping out their crystal balls and predicting an almost immediate reversion to deflationary conditions. In their view, a recession will balance everything out. Now, he says, for most of these people, I would suggest keep your crystal balls in your pants. They've been consistently wrong, and it's time for them to shut up. He says, if you were predicting that inflation would be transitory last year, then you have no right to act like you're an economist today. It's going to take more than one semi-aggressive rate hike from the central bank to stop the inflation problem. And he says, when I say inflation, I'm talking price inflation, not the mere increase of the money supply or a bubble in the stock markets. He says there are far too many financial analysts out there that don't even grasp what true inflation really entails. And he says there are certain sectors of the economy that will indeed see deflationary pressures. Real GDP, for example, is witnessing declines. Retail sales are in decline. U.S. wages are stagnant in comparison to prices. Housing sales are now falling rapidly. Manufacturing is dropping. Yet prices continue to remain high. So clearly, there's a mix of inflationary and deflationary elements within the same economic crisis. In other words, it's a stagflation event. An area in which prices continue to climb without much relent is energy. 
Now, the mainstream blames this almost entirely on Russia's conflict with Ukraine and the evolving sanctions against Russian oil and natural gas. However, gas prices were spiking well before Russia ever invaded Ukraine. Inflation in the overall economy hit 40-year highs long before Ukraine became an issue, as Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell finally admitted this last week. By the way, just as an aside, isn't it curious how we're hearing almost nothing about Ukraine in the news lately? Kind of wonder why that is. I wonder if all those uh, those hopeful and, and inspiring stories that were being beamed at us over the last few months were maybe not as on target or factual as uh, the mainstream media would like us to believe they were. Just a thought. Anyway, back to Brandon Smith's article. Let's not pretend like we don't know the cause of all this. It's caused by fiat money printing by the Federal Reserve since 2008, and central banks in general are the culprits. Now, the bankers can fund or refuse to fund whatever they wish. Government politicians play their role in creating inflation by asking for the money, but it's the Fed that decides if they create the money. The government has zero power to dictate policy to the Fed, as Alan Greenspan once admitted. The Fed answers to no one. By the way, he has a link to, to that if you want to explore that in further detail. Brandon Smith says the central bank could print us into oblivion if they wished. And this is essentially what they have done. That said, there are other elements to our current crisis beyond too many dollars. There's also the issue of supply chain disruptions. He says, I'm specifically reminded of the stagflation threat that occurred in the 1970s. The oil and stagflation crisis of the late 1970s, he says, ran its course right before I was born, so obviously I can't give a first-hand accounting of what it was like. But when I study the events that led up to it, I find a lot of similarities to the situation we're facing today. Though the crisis that's developing right now has the potential to become far worse. Now, he says, in the early 1970s, Richard Nixon, at the request of central bankers, removed the dollar from the last vestiges of the gold standard. Central banks shifted away from gold as the primary trade mechanism between governments and started switching over to special drawing rights, the IMF's basket currency system. Not surprisingly, the dollar began an immediate spiral and its buying power began to crash. Stagflation became a household concern throughout the 70s. Now, the problem was mitigated eventually as the dollar's world reserve status grew. Basically, we exported many of our dollars overseas for use in global trade. And by extension, we also exported a lot of our inflation slash stagflation. As long as the dollar remained the premier reserve currency, most of the consequences of central bank fiat printing would not be felt by the general populace. In terms of gasoline, the dollar has been the petrol currency for decades which allowed us to keep prices in the U.S. lower than in many countries. But he warns, things are changing. The dollar's portion of global trade has been in decline for the past several years, and the Fed just keeps creating more greenbacks from nothing. In 2020 alone, the Fed conjured $6 trillion to fuel the COVID stimulus response, pumping all that money directly into the system through COVID checks and PPP loans. In order for this process to continue, the dollar's global global percentage of trade would have to keep growing in order to export U.S. inflation overseas. This is not happening. The dollar's percentage of global trade is in reversion. We are dealing with the end of a cycle that began in the 1970s. We're going back to the beginning. Furthermore, he says the gas crisis in the late 1970s and early 80s was also driven by the Iranian Revolution and the removal of Iranian oil supplies from the global market. 
and this created a loss of around 7% of total oil from the markets. But it resulted in gas prices exploding from 65 cents a gallon in 1978 to $1.35 in 1981. Prices more than doubled in the span of three years and never went back to where they were before the crisis. As in the late 1970s, he says, we also have a supply chain issue with an OPEC nation. The Russian portion of the global oil production was around 10% in 2020, but the nation is the second largest exporter of oil in the world. Only 3% of oil imported into the U.S. comes from Russia, but Europe relies on Russia for about 25% of its total oil consumption. Now, the EU is supposedly cutting off that oil supply, though there are still questions surrounding loopholes and how much Russian oil is still actually being supplied to European nations. As sanctions continue the EU will have to go to other exporters to get what they need, and this is reducing the amount of supply available to Western countries. The Russians have simply adapted and are now selling more oil to as a, at a discount to major Eastern markets like China and India. But for the rest of us, Europe's thirst for oil is going to continue to cause price expansion as supplies falter. So where does this leave us? Well, he says, uh, our situation is similar to the gas crisis of the late 1970s because we have ongoing stagflation, a weakening currency, as well as a major economic conflict with an OPEC producer. That said, things are measurably worse than the 1970s for a few reasons, notably the fact that our country's in far more debt, foreign treasury and dollar holdings are in decline, and conflict with Russia is far more egregious than our troubles with Iran in the 70s. So he predicts we will see at least a 300% markup in gas prices from pre-pandemic lows, which were around 260 per gallon for regular, meaning prices will continue to climb over the course of this year and level out at around 750 per gallon by the second quarter of 2023. Now he says, I'm basing this on the price increases according to the pace that we saw back in 1979 to 1980. Now, obviously, there will be market dips and pauses, but he says it's unlikely we'll see prices at the pump fall dramatically anytime soon. There will be endless predictions in the mainstream media about when inflation will stop, and many pundits will claim the Fed will capitulate soon on rate hikes, but all this clamor will affect oil markets to a point, but prices will continue to rise regardless. So what does this mean for the wider economy? Well, inflation and necessities like gas means an implosion in retail. People will divert funds away from other purchases to cover gas and energy costs. Expensive gas means expensive freight rates, which means higher prices for every single thing on store shelves. It'll also cause smaller freight companies to go bankrupt or close up. Less freight means less supply, which means higher prices on everything. It's a terrible cycle. He says eventually lack of demand will slow price increases, but not until we're much higher than the current national average of five bucks a gallon. And if you live in a state with high taxes like California, be prepared for double-digit costs at the pump. Ouch. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a quick shout-out here to uh, lifesavingfood.com. Click on the link that I supply in my show notes, and you will see a lot of ideas that could bring you peace of mind as the times become ever more uncertain. By the way, this sounds like, hey, you're really enjoying this, Brian. What's the, what's the sound of that smile in your voice? 
I don't like uncertain times more than anybody else, but I'll tell you what I do like, and that is you and I are currently in a window of opportunity where we can still do something about it. Now, ideally, our preparations and our our self-reliance efforts started a long time ago. I mean, for a lot of people, this has been a way of life. And, and it's not like, oh, they are hunkered down somewhere in a concrete bunker, you know, with a gun in hand and, you know, their night vision goggles on just waiting for the end to come. I know that's that's a popular attitude to, to describe for preppers. Oh, you always think the world's going to be ending and it's, it's just right around the corner. The point is nobody knows for sure. But what we've seen revealed over the last few years, especially the last couple of years, is that there are some definite vulnerabilities in our systems. So to me, the prudent move is do what you can to shore up your situation. If you knew, for instance, that uh, there could be supply chain breakdowns or that there could be uh, dramatic price increases, just as an example, a couple of examples there, wouldn't it make sense to stock up on the things that you need, be it uh, long-term food storage or emergency preparedness items, solar things that will keep your your, uh, phone and other devices charged? seems like it would make sense to do that now than before something major happens and, and suddenly everybody is scrambling trying to get their hands on a limited amount of resources. Well, lifesavingfood.com can help you with that. Very proud to have them as a sponsor. I hope you'll do some business with them. By the way, I don't know if you have been following the drought in the American West. Actually, I guess if you live in the American West, you've probably been following it because you've noticed the the scared look in the eyes of so many uh, political leaders. You know, oh, my gosh, the state is in so much trouble. We've had to declare a state of emergency and so forth. I've been aware of this drought for some time, and I've paid, you know, passing attention to it. Oh, wow, that looks really bad. Fire danger is high. Look at this. Farmers are struggling to get, you know, enough water. Uh, they're worried about uh, developing uh, you know, different cities are wondering, can we even afford to grow if, if we're having water difficulties? But I tell you, nothing prepared me for the video that I watched yesterday showing just how far the water levels have dropped at Lake Mead. Now, I've seen a couple of pictures of Lake Powell. And I have to say, when I was living in southern Utah, one of my favorite things in the world was to connect up with Lynn Chamberlain, who was then, I think, the the public relations guy or the media spokesman for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. And at least once a year... I'd get together with a couple of my cohorts there in in the radio business, and we would go do a media junket to Lake Powell, which is a fancy way of saying we got to take a a company-paid fishing trip, although we did do our show from there on the lake, which I think was, you know, us upholding our end of, you know, keeping keeping some good programming out there. But the idea was we get to go fishing. We'd often go with the lake biologist, and it was amazing. And there were times when the water level was really low, and there were times when, you know, the water level was much higher, and we could... uh, basically take a shortcut to get to the good fishing spots. So I've watched Lake Powell, and I've seen the water level there dropping and just been, whoa, that is insane. But Lake Mead, holy cow. I've enclosed a link. There's a link included in my show notes to this very, very well-done video. It's a father and son team that go out there. I mean, to get to the lake, and they show you the water levels. You know, this is what the water level was like, you know, At this point in 2000, and then it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards just to get down to where the water is. They've had to extend the loading ramp, and and frankly, if it drops much lower, they're not even going to be able to to load, to uh, um, launch. That's the word I'm looking for, to launch boats anymore. As it is, 
if you don't have a, a boat with a shallow keel, you know, if you've got a good deep V kind of keel on your boat, you're not going to get to put it in. But these guys wait in line for like two hours or more just to, to get their boat launched. And then they go to some of the far-flung areas of the lake where you see all these boats that have been underwater for the better part of 60 years. Barrels. I know there's a lot of, you know, a lot of speculation. Are these uh, bodies the mob has dropped and so forth? It's, it's really kind of creepy. But these guys do a marvelous job of showing you just how far the level has dropped. And why is this significant? Well, Southern California... And Las Vegas, among others. I mean, we're talking millions of people depend on Lake Mead for drinking water as well as for water that generates electricity through hydroelectric dams. And it's going away fast. I don't know what it means, but I'll tell you, it is it is eye-opening. And if, if you wonder why um, elected leaders particularly are so terrified right now about the lack of water, um, this this will give you a good understanding why it's it's something you almost have, you have to see it to believe it. So I thoughtfully included the link. I hope you'll check it out. All right, let's end on a positive note here. How you define success is going to reveal a lot about who you are and what you prize. In other words, what your priorities are in life. I have really enjoyed the writing of James Walpole for many many years, and I came across this article: seven questions he likes to ask successful people. This is from back in November of 2018. And he says, the goal is asking the questions you won't normally get answers to in their public interviews and appearances. So he says, I'm an interviewer at heart. And he says, these days when I meet just about anyone, I approach a first conversation with the mindset of a learner and the goal of really digging into the stuff that normal small talk won't touch on. So he says, this is a list of questions that I'll ask just about anybody I find interesting. And just asking them can make anyone interesting and interested. He says, I'm posting them here in reserve and in reminder to use when I meet with phenomenally successful people. The goal? Asking the questions you won't normally get answers to in their public interviews and appearances. Now, what does he mean by successful people? He says, look, I'll admit I'm skeptical of how much the word success is thrown around, often without definition. But he says, for my working, evolving definition, I'd say that a successful person by my standards is the following. Someone who is in the process of achieving mastery over the conditions of their own existence. They do not suppress reality or ignore it. They work with it. They have come to a place where they enjoy the process of being. So, by that definition, a successful person could be a tennis star like Serena Williams or BB&T CEO John Allison or your old farmer grandfather who never lies, always keeps his word, and is just as happy as a clam. So these are the seven questions for successful people, which James Walpole uh, portrayed as a work in progress. He suggests one of those questions be, what is one piece of conventional advice that you disagree with most strongly? That's kind of cool. I love people who are willing to march uh, to the beat of their own drum rather than just, you know, in lockstep with everybody else. Second question, what is one piece of unconventional advice that you disagree with most strongly? Question number three, what was your biggest mistake? What helped you to identify it? What helped you to get over it? Number four, what is your biggest weakness? What helped you to identify it? What helps you to get over it? Number five, what do you do to gain self-awareness when everyone is out to flatter you? 
I could see that being a problem for very successful people. I've never had to deal with it myself, but I could see where it would be for, for the successful folks. Number six, when are you closest to a state of flow? How do you get there? And number seven, how did you find your definition of success and what is it? Now, I'm going to suggest that uh, maybe you could take these same questions and ask them to yourself. If you just want to kind of get an idea of where you are in terms of what, what do you consider success and how do you measure whether you're getting near it or whether you're drifting further from it. I mean, I look, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I spend a lot of my life content to be carried with the current. You know, hey, things are all right right now. The boat's not rocking real hard, and I don't know where we're going, but uh, the current seems to be moving us along. So, you know, let's just enjoy the trip and, you know, see where it, where it leads us. And then about 20, maybe 22 years ago, I encountered uh, some folks who opened my mind and my eyes to the idea that, hey, maybe you were put on this earth to do something more than just collect a paycheck and buy things and, you know, eventually retire and run out the clock until you die. See, my definition of success started to change about that time. It stopped being about, well, you know, what titles can I accrue and what, how much money can I put aside and how many cool toys can I have that show what a successful person I am? How many awards do I have on the wall proclaiming my success? And for me, the definition of success switched to uh, climbing the, the social and corporate ladder to having impact and not just impact, but the right kind of impact. And for me, that meant uh, I had to relinquish my love of throwing red meat and getting people stirred up and try to find a little bit different approach to uh, doing what I do and what I love to do, which is to communicate. I'm still working on it. My My definition of success is still in a state of flux. But I definitely like asking those tough questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show.